Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome to another weekend bonus episode of the Tech Meme Ride Home. I'm Brian McCullough. Here is our Twitter space from this week. I think we recorded it Wednesday night. We ended up talking all about Coinbase, helped by some great analysis from Romine Sheth, who I think you'll recall I quoted from when we talked about this on the show on Wednesday. You can follow Romine on Twitter at Romine Sheth. I've got a link in the show notes. And also, Romine has a great podcast called Square One, where he interviews founders and investors, folks like Anthony Pompliano, Lee Jin, David Sachs, even Andrew Yang. Give it a listen. Search Square One on your podcast app of choice. I feel like there's been so much financial news, like like yesterday, today, all over the place. It's like It's hard to keep track of. Yeah, it's one of those days. Some days I do... I do five segments and I scrape to find five segments. Mm-hmm. And then some days it's like I could do 10 and I have to leave <laughs> things out. But um, I I wanted to leave that stupid Facebook story out today. But <laughs> that was the big one. I know, one. I know, I know. And, and I, I just, but yeah. I'm, I know, I understand. It's exhausting. <laughs> yeah. Welcome to the weather that is Facebook breaches. Yeah. Okay. So which one do you want to kick it off with? Oh, come on. Let's do Coinbase. Yeah. Okay. Great. And because uh, Romaine's here. Uh, yeah. Why don't, we, why don't we do it that way? Um, oh, so I should probably kick us off. All right. So uh, welcome, everyone. Today is Wednesday, April 7th. This is the Tech Meme Ride Home Experience uh, with your co-host, Chris Messina, and Brian McCullough, the host of the Tech Meme Ride Home podcast. Um, this is a show where we talk about the day's news, we try to unpack what's going on, we try to understand it, put it into a broader context, and basically address the need that I felt as I was walking down the street all by my lonesome, listening to Ryan's, pod, Ryan's podcast, and thinking to myself, man, I really want to talk to someone about this. And then it just turned out that I could just talk to Ryan directly, and so we decided to make those calls available to everybody else to join in. So here we are. Yes, and um, oh, yes. The, the the news of the day, uh, if people are are uh, jazzed about this, is that um, you know what I, I I might not even read, but mm. I'll give you. I remember I'm old enough to remember when um, Google went public and they announced their uh, financials, and people were like, "Holy shit." Right. Oh, I see. Yep. Uh, and, and and but that was at a time where um, you know no one even knew that you could make money on the internet. <laughs> There's been a lot of holy shit about the uh, the amount of money that Coinbase is making. So uh, to, to to put it in context, Coinbase is going to do a direct listing April 14th, and they promise that f- 
ahead of that, they would report their quarterly earnings. And, oh, why would you do that? Maybe because you've got some really good quarterly earnings. Uh, and, like, you know, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to talk about this in depth in a second, but like on the one hand, <laughs> the, you know, the, they're basically like, like, let's just put it on a base level. Um, they're, they're doing profits of as high as $800 million a quarter on $1.8 billion in revenue. So that's a great business. Um, and then, you know, we can get into this very quickly. They're doing already more revenue than the New York Stock Exchange does. They're making more in a quarter than Deutsche Bank makes in a year. Um, or uh, I think that's right. Or maybe it's more in a year than Deutsche Bank. But whatever. Look, dude, this is crazy. They're making so much money. And um, Romine is the person that I quoted on uh, the show today for his tweet storm. So, uh, Romain, if you want to step in right now, or I can start quoting some of your tweet storm, because, like, I, I By just... By the way, I went and pinned his tweet to the top of the space. So if anybody wants to go see it, it's there. But the numbers are just staggering. And you know what, uh, Romain, I'm going to tee you up a little bit. Um, the idea that... This crypto exchange is potentially bigger than the NYSE or the NASDAQ in a lot of different metrics. Isn't that a little nutty to you? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the crazy part of this whole thing, right, is conceptually, right, Coinbase broke its numbers yesterday. um, And the feedback from everybody was just, this is crazy, right? I mean, the market cap is going to, eclipse Goldman Sachs when they go day one, when they go public, they're doing more revenue than ICE, which owns the New York Stock Exchange. They're doing way more than NASDAQ. So conceptually, I think it's just difficult for us to fathom that, you know, here's this kind of fringe cryptocurrency technologies that we have. But there was another tweet yesterday on Twitter, and I hope I'm pronouncing this guy's name right. Tyler Hogg, I think is how you pronounce his last name. But he's over at Divi. And he had a really awesome tweet, which I thought just encapsulated the whole thing, which was Credit Suisse is a bank with 50,000 employees founded in 1856 and has a net income of $2.8 billion. And then you've got Coinbase, which has 1,500 employees founded only 10 years ago and is on a net income run rate of $3.2 billion. So it's, it's just staggering, right? I mean, the numbers, the numbers, are, the numbers are incredible. And I, I think the, I mean, the amazing thing also is you know, the numbers in and of themselves are incredible, but I think the context, which a lot of people are missing, is is actually even more fascinating. So just a couple of facts, you know, for everybody listening, which actually I think makes the story almost even crazier. August 2017, I'll probably get the dates wrong, but this is this is about right. I think August 2017 or so, Coinbase did a round at it was like a one and a half or maybe one point six billion dollar valuation. I think Insight led it, uh, Spark, Battery, a couple other folks participated. And and that's really when, you know, Coinbase kind of cemented itself in unicorn status. And people were saying, okay, you know, maybe this Bitcoin thing is real, right? But a lot of people wrote it off at the same time, because they said, you know, 2017 was, an, was the significant bubble. Fast forward about a year and a quarter later, in October of 2018. And then they did a round at an $8 billion valuation. Now, Andreessen came in, Wellington came in, 
And the conversation at that point in time was basically, you know, this is insane, right? People were basically talking about how this was five vax, you know, from only a year earlier and kind of the classic signs of, you know, this is a bubble. The valuation doesn't make any sense, right? People in Silicon Valley don't know what they're doing, et cetera, et cetera, right? And so that was that was kind of the shop talk. You fast forward to 2021 and, and earlier this year, right, before these numbers were released publicly, we started seeing all these secondary auctions. So I think in February of this year, there was a private auction and the stock was selling at like 300 bucks a share, which would have been an imputed valuation of around 75, $80 billion, somewhere in that range. Hmm. Then in March, there was additional auctions and secondaries, and it was getting as high as $350 a share. And what people were referencing was effectively, you know, the price is now in the 90 to $100 billion range. And so, you know, again, crypto euphoria, this is a bubble, et cetera. Um, and then these numbers come out yesterday, which, by the way, I thought was just brilliant, right? Which is you have a direct listing coming out on the 14th. Let's basically release the numbers on the 6th. The old right, adage right. is when you're going public, right? You always want to have kind of six quarters in the bag. You know, these guys definitely have at least Q1 in the bag, right, comfortably. Um, and now we're kind of all left kind of chomping at the bits and frothy, you know, over this direct listing coming out in a week, right? So it's it's an incredible business. There's there's no question about it. And I think the context of when you kind of think of the fact that it was a $1 billion valuation just four years ago, right. and, uh, and it's going to break $100 billion, you know, when it comes out next week, also just shows, you know, how fast businesses are moving now, right? We're going to see businesses eclipsing these levels faster and faster. And and, and I, I want to come back to that in a second, but I promised, uh, and I've already broken the promise, uh, Romain, uh, please introduce yourself. I, I referenced you on the show today. I don't know if everyone listening has heard the show today. So um, just tell us who you are real quick. And then I do have a quick question on that. Yeah, absolutely. So um, my name is Romain Schaub. Nice to meet everybody. I run a business in the workforce and talent space. We do about eight figures in revenue a year. Um, and I do a ton of angel investing. So I invest a couple million dollars a year into, into startups across, you know, every sector, kind of every industry and, and every stage. Um, so glad to be with you guys. Okay. So here's, here's my question based on what you were just saying. And I'm going to quote Alexander Taub. Uh, from a tweet that he did, where he said that uh, Coinbase today just reaffirms that market and timing is everything when building a company, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats. And, you know, that that, that kind of gets into the whole idea that you'd better be lucky than good, you know. Um, and, and he actually goes on to say that, like, you know, teams are great and, and uh, market fit is great, but it, timing trumps everything. I'm just curious what you think about the fact that what if this was a year ago? A year ago right now, all of cryptos were in the toilet. And we're going to get into why Coinbase has such a, a great business. But um, do you think that it's just like perfect timing for them? Like, if this was a year ago, do you think they they would be even contemplating going public? I don't know. It's a good question. I mean, I, I think whenever I think about businesses, I think I think that framing generally is right, which you think about kind of mar- market product and team. Uh, but there's different levels of kind of longitudinal thinking I think you need to apply to these businesses, right? So, you know, would it have been perfect timing for them to go public, you know, at the doldrums of the crypto market? No, right? I mean, at the end of the day, no matter how you slice it, this business is inextricably linked to what's going on in crypto. If crypto ultimately fails, you know, it doesn't matter how great of a team they've assembled, how great of a user interface, how great of security infrastructure, et cetera. 
this company is just not going to work because fundamentally at the end of the day, it's a trade on, it's a transaction platform for crypto, right? Right. So there's, I, I mean, there's certainly some element of timing involved here. I think savvy management teams understand that, you know, exactly what I was alluding to earlier. You want to go public, you know, when you have the next ideally four to six quarters in the bag. So, you know, would it have been wise for them to go public at that point in time? You know, absolutely not. Are they going public at a time at which, you know, we are in a little bit of a euphoric market stage and they're going to basically be able to, you know, get a little bit of a premium for it? Probably, right? But I think the I think the right longitudinal trade is to say, you know, ultimately, if you believe that crypto is going to have a place in the economy, which is very hard to believe it's not going to now, and you don't just believe necessarily in Bitcoin, in Ethereum, you know, in any of these individual coins, but you believe there's going to need to be a marketplace for us to transact coins. Um, this is the ultimate pick and shovels business, right? So, right. And, and, and I'm going to do one more and then uh, Chris can jump in, but um, I'm, I'm going to quote from something that I actually, I don't think I, I, I said this on the show today because I quoted from your tweet storm on the show today, but um, uh, you, you said, whether retail has inflated the price of crypto or not, it's impossible to ignore if you're an institution at this point. This is going to further increase the price of crypto assets and correspondingly increase the value of each major crypto exchange. So essentially, what you're suggesting is that, number one, the the, the picks and shovels idea that, like, you know, assuming crypto prices stay high, clearly they can make bank. And it's a beautiful, beautiful, wonderful business. But essentially, by proving the market, they're almost guaranteeing that the market's going to grow. Um, so like, it, and I, I said, I did say this on the show today, it's almost like the Netscape moment for the internet, where it's like, there, if, if, the, if all of a sudden, next week, you know, they have a hundred billion dollar valuation. I don't think people are thinking that high maybe, but like it, it's going to prove to people that like, this is, there is real money here and it's almost going to be like that self reinforcing cycle where it's like, then, all right, then, then the, the institutional money comes in, then all the other money comes in. And like, this is, this is almost like a big bang moment for crypto. Yeah, I mean, I think you're already seeing it, right? So I, I think if we unpack your question into a couple, a couple elements, and, and by the way, I think 100 billion is totally reasonable, right? We can we can get into that, but it's basically like 13 times their run rate, right? Um, mm, and right, even if you yeah. make the argument, which they did, which I think is right, is that hey, our, our run rate is a little bit inflated, right? Because you know of how much euphoria is going on, and you know don't think of us as having a seven billion dollar run rate. Think of us as having like a five billion dollar run rate. It's still 20 times sales, right? Which is which is a super reasonable and healthy for how fast that business is growing. Um, that it doesn't even approach, you know, a lot of SaaS multiples today, which are in the 35 to 40 X range. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, I, I think the, I think the right way to think about it is it's kind of encapsulated in, in the way JP Morgan almost thinks about it. A couple of years ago, you know, Jamie Dimon's coming out on stage and basically saying, Hey, this whole thing is a joke. It's fraud. You know, you shouldn't even be looking at it. And now JP Morgan has a dedicated desk towards it, right? They're putting out client alerts. They put out a price target the other day that, Hey, we think Bitcoin can go to 130,000. So the whole attitude has changed amongst institutions, um, and part of that has been driven by retail, right? Uh, another big part of that that has driven this kind of institutional interest, though, is just what's going on in our economy. I mean, we've printed more than 40% of all U.S. dollars in existence in the last year. Now, again, this, that's not to say 
that's right or wrong, you know, based on the situation that we were in. You can absolutely make the case and, and many, you know, make the case, I would make the case that, you know, these levels of aid are absolutely necessary. We're going through kind of a, a complete kind of once in a generation, you know, type shock moment. But it doesn't change the fact that, you know, that amount of dollars being printed by the Fed increases the money supply, which devalues every individual dollar, right? And people are looking at, well, what is a naturally deflationary asset? What is an asset you know, that can't be printed, you know, at whim, basically based on the government that's in charge? And and Bitcoin can't, right? I mean, there's only 21 million coins. It's a it's a finite supply, right? And so mm-hmm. the idea that it's it's kind of a it's a confluence of multiple forces, right? Um, I think it's a part part of it is a moment in time that's certainly accelerating this retail interest. Uh, that's certainly accelerating retail's interest in the product. But I think we see this in a lot of industries. And I, I think when you look at Coinbase's product portfolio, the interesting thing is for the first, you know, six, seven, eight years of that business, it really was just about sending and receiving crypto, you know, investing in crypto. And for the longest time, it was three coins, right? It was Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Litecoin. That's right, it. right. Right. Really, over the last two years, you're starting to see you know, a savings platform, a custody platform, a staking business, like you're starting to see all these evolutions and you're starting to see a lot more coins that are making it on the platform. So, you know, Coinbase to me now is actually more comparable to a true exchange like a NASDAQ, an IC, et cetera, because it's not, you know, hey, there's three currencies on here that you trade, but it's basically this is every individual crypto asset, not dissimilar from how you would trade every individual public equity. Right. So um, let, let, let me let me poke at that for a second because um, I, I'm I'm not going to get this exactly right, but um, someone told me this week that um, and actually Chris and I have experienced this for for trying to sell NFTs and things like that. That like if you want to trade crypto on the blockchain, it's basically too expensive. Like, uh, you know, Chris and I have experienced that with gas fees and yeah. things like that. It's so, like a hundred bucks to mint in an app. Right, right, right. To sell for 40 bucks. So in a sense, Coinbase has a moat and an efficiency and a cost advantage for being a marketplace that for, uh, especially, um, um, you know, the, 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 the big moneyed players, like they'd rather do business on Coinbase than trying, like if you're, if you're some sort of like uh, crypto maximalist, you're always going to be trying to do it on the blockchain, but everyone else is going to do it on Coinbase. And so like, that's essentially a great sort of a moat that, uh, that uh, th- they can exploit for uh, the, the going future. Right. Yeah. I think it's two things. I think one is, um, one is whenever there's a kind of like a fringe or a new technology, you always have technology maximalists or people that are at the cutting edge that are kind of focused op- on optimizing, you know, things like fees or really kind of going to the native source, et cetera. The reality is, is the mass market and the mass public is never going to be on that fringe of technology, right? So you could have made the same argument, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, et cetera, when you're thinking about you know, email or different types of protocols, et cetera, where you could say, you know, you'd have a faction in a group which would say, well, you know, we could really, you know, do it in XYZ type way and it'd be more efficient or, or so on and so forth. But, you know, why is email pervasive, right? Or why why are these businesses like Coinbase, et cetera, um, you know, pervasive? It's because the mass, the vast majority of people, like my thesis in 10 years is people are not like, and, and you'll kind of know crypto has really made it when it gets to this moment is in 10 years, you're not going to start calling companies crypto companies, right? When these companies are just natively 
performing on the blockchain or leveraging crypto, and we're not identifying them as crypto companies, you know crypto will have gone in mainstream. So I, I, I think, think that's, that's one, true. Yeah, I think that's I, one portion of it, right? I think there's that. another I think there's another portion of it also though, which is whenever you look at any business, right, especially any disruptive technology, it typically always starts out like there's a clear pattern of these businesses starting at the top of the stack and then continuing as they get adoption to lower things like transaction fees, et cetera. So Uber started out as a black car limo service, right? Uber pool was not in the cards when that business started out. Tesla has famously put out their plan that, you know, the whole idea was to build the Model S and such so that they could get enough economies of scale and enough kind of modular parts or, or know-how to build cars like, you know, the three and more economical cars. So I think we've seen this in in technology generally, but we've seen this in brokerage, right? I mean, you don't, it used to be nine ninety nine a trade on E-Trade or Charles Schwab or so, <laughs> right? I mean, Robinhood has completely come and knocked that out of the park. You can make the argument they've taken it too far in the other direction, which is, you know, they're they're basically lowering the interest that you would require for margin because they want to sell your order flow, right? So I think, I think over a period of time, these fees come down. And I, I think that's actually a challenge, candidly, for Coinbase's business, which is, you know, the fee structure is going to come down, you know, over a period of time. Yeah. yeah let, let me give you one more uh, before I let Chris in. And I'm so sorry, Chris. Um, this is about specifically Coinbase and competition and being in the picks and shovels business. Like uh, PayPal is doing this and and Square is doing this. And so when we're talking about margins, and I, I think like Coinbase's uh, their fees are like two and a half percent or something like that. Like, um, so, uh, you know, one of the reasons why Square has been exploding in, if you, if you've been a Square shareholder recently is because of crypto trading and things like that. So like, is Coinbase, uh, you might not know this. I, I don't know if you're an analyst of Coinbase stock or whatever, but like, if everybody sees that there's tons of money to be made here, which we can all see, like, is the danger that everyone's going to come and try to eat their lunch? Yeah. So definitely not a Coinbase analyst. So nobody should take my advice as a, as a Coinbase analyst. Um, but I, so let's unpack that. I think there's a couple of things in your question, right? So one is, you know, what's the impact of other people seeing that there's an opportunity, right? Um, and then the other part of that is I think it's inextricably basically tied to market size, right? So the, the way I think about this is it's probably best explained actually through an analogy, and then I'll, I'll explain kind of the, the logic or the parlay to Coinbase's business. So a lot of people talk about self-driving cars for Uber, right? And, and the classic kind of trope, or I think the classic kind of false choice fallacy that people fall into is self-driving cars are going to come eventually and when self-driving cars come, there's going to be no room for drivers in Uber's business. Okay. Now, if you look over the next 10 years and you look at ride sharing today, ride sharing is like 1% of all miles that are traveled in the world, right? And so let's say self-driving does come into place, right? If Uber over the next year lift any of these businesses, let's say the global share of ride sharing increases to just 10% of all miles that are traveled that market is going to grow by 10x. And let's say self-driving comes in and takes 50% of that market. Let's let's be over-aggressive and say they take 70% of that market. You're still going to need 3x the number of drivers that you have on the Uber platform today to satisfy that demand. So that's kind of the way I think about Coinbase. Coinbase wrote in their S1, they said, look, we want to attract 
the entire smartphone wielding population. Okay, that number is 3.5 billion people. So let's say they did get all those folks, or let's say all of those folks kind of came online. And for a second, let's just assume they got they got all those folks and other competitors didn't, right? If they got all those folks, that's about 350 million active users, right? And that's at, that's at about a 10% ratio. They have about 56 million users, and I think about 6 million are actives or so. So let's say they got all 3.5 billion users, and let's say they kept their ratio, which is 10%. They'd have 350 million actives. That's 50x from here. And that's just assuming you're talking about the transaction product. <laughs> yeah. So I think a lot of times what happens in technology is we get like we get really kind of cornered almost into this false choice, which is this idea of, well, what happens when Square comes in and PayPal comes in and all these, I mean, all these players are going to come in anytime there's an attractive market. Anybody that has the ability and where it strategically makes sense is going to build buyer partner. They're going to be a part of that ecosystem. So there's no question that all these other guys are going to come in. The argument I would make is there is so much room to run here. You know, we are so in the first innings of this. And that's, I think that's the important part for everybody to think about, which is, on one hand, kind of our mental models are breaking because this company is going to go public at $100 billion. Goldman Sachs is a $110 billion market cap. So on one hand, we're kind of breaking our mental models of saying, how did this thing that came out of nowhere in only the last 10 years is effectively going to eclipse every major financial global global financial institution in the world? That's like that's what's happening on one side of our brain. It's kind of breaking our model and we're not able to really grasp it. On the other side, though, when you actually look at the size of these markets, it's just so obvious that we are so in the first inning. It's not even funny. Whenever I need to do financial research for this show, for instance, during tech earnings season, when I have to analyze how various companies' stocks have been performing, I only ever turn to our sponsor today, Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They are the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insights to look at your wealth in its entirety. With a community of over 90 million users each month, their real strength is helping you on your way to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. We all know there are things in life that you have to compromise on, but when it comes to your health, there is no compromise. So don't go back to that one doctor who uses your appointment to catch up on the latest headlines, their family group chat, their crossword puzzles, just because they're available right now or they take your slightly sketchy insurance. Instead, check out ZocDoc, the place where you can find and book doctors who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your health. And you can search by location, availability, and insurance. So literally no compromises here, because with ZocDoc, you've got more options than you know. 
ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. Once you find the doc you want, you can book them immediately. No more waiting awkwardly on hold with a receptionist. And these docs all have verified reviews from actual real patients. We're talking about booking appointments with tens of thousands of top-rated, patient-reviewed, credible doctors and specialists. I have personally used ZocDoc to find a podiatrist when I needed one for the first time ever in my life. Go to ZocDoc.com slash techmeme and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash techmeme. ZocDoc.com slash techmeme. Right. And I, I okay, think that's, so, so let, that's me, let me push on that. Because I think like what you're saying is is interesting in the sense that these things will grow, just as if you were to invest in Netscape, you know, in like 1994, I think it was then. Um, or, you know, like I was involved in the launch of Firefox in 2004. To imagine like the web growing into what it is now and how ubiquitous it is um, seems like something, uh, let's just, of course, it's not guaranteed, but it seems like that is where a lot of the, the winds are heading. One of the things that I'd like to understand from your perspective is the, I guess, power that the platform owners and builders have to affect uh, the ability for Coinbase to service those customers that you just mentioned. So it's one part, right? So whether it's Apple Pay or whether it's, you know, what Facebook has been trying to do with Diem or whatever it's called now, um, or just, you know, Android and Google Pay, those don't really have on-roads into crypto yet. Maybe they will. You know, obviously PayPal's in there and there's, uh, you know, Cash and Square and those guys are doing it too. Um, and then the other part of this question, though, is what is or what are those new millions and millions of customers actually doing with Coinbase? Because Coinbase currently seems like this nice on-ramp into what effectively is sort of like a Forex, except it's, uh, you know, DeFi. And so how relevant is Coinbase actually to the customer base that you just described in the future? Like, yes, payment in cash is relevant to all of those people. And yes, crypto can replace kind of the, the fiat currency of the past with digital currency of the future. But I'm trying to sort of just wrap my mind around this, this growth potential and whether or not Coinbase actually has control of its future, given, you know, what we're seeing with Facebook, where they don't have a, a, a mobile or a hardware platform. And so they're scrambling to try to win, you know, the future or at least seize parts of the future with an augmented reality headset or a watch or something like that. So these are all the things that I'm, I'm, I'm trying to sort of understand when it comes to what Coinbase's long-term businesses and relationship to its potential customers are. Yeah, I mean, look, I, th- I think in some sense it's kind of the million-dollar question, right, Chris? Because none of us are in the, the multi-billion-dollar question, how, how right. how, yeah, multi-billion-dollar question, right, on on how they're thinking about it. But what I will say is, you know, if we just kind of look back at the framing of your question, I think there were two parts that you mentioned that were really important. One of which was. You know, you were involved in the early days of Firefox, et cetera, and nobody had any idea on what the internet was going to turn into, right? right. And, and right. nobody could imagine that, right? That's yep. number one. I was just watching this. Somebody had sent me this tweet uh, a couple of days ago, which was basically like a Good Morning America clip on like, what was email? And they were spending like 30 minutes talking about the at symbol and what did that actually mean, right? And that was only 20 years ago, right? Which is which is just astounding. So that I think that's one big part of it. I think the other big part of it is, you know, if if you're in a situation like like Facebook, where we're we're saying, you know, hey, they're clamoring for their life or they're clamoring for kind of that next thing. I mean, that business is an eight hundred billion dollar business, right? Yeah. With, yeah. with billions of users on the platform. And I think the thing when you the thing that's exciting when you look at a business like Coinbase is 
you know, they only have 56 million users. Like I, I can't off the top of my head, and I'd even challenge folks that are listening to this with some decent research, think about a ratio of a company that only has 56 million users and of that, 6 million active users generating the kind of financials that these guys are generating. I mean, in, in a sense, it basically says, like, if these guys can go pick up 50 to 100 million actives, right, which is a penny drop in the world, you're talking another, you know, 20 to 30x from here. And, and again, what we're assuming, and this is kind of always how you have to have these discussions, right, is, you know, we're basically assuming that they're existing in their product. I'll, I'll give you an example. A couple of years, I, I've got a podcast myself as well. A couple of years ago, I'd interviewed uh, Megan Quinn, who used to be at Spark Capital, uh, yeah. who's now yeah. at Niantic Labs. Yeah. And Megan was on the, at least at that time when she was at Spark, she was on the board of Coinbase. And I remember asking her this question. This was like four years ago. I said, you know, Megan, what do you think about the price of Bitcoin, right? And how do you think about that in relation to Coinbase? Isn't that the big existential risk? And at that point in time, you know, I'm sure with obviously some some purview into being on the board, she she told me, she said, you know, Ramin, I think you're, I don't think you're thinking about it big enough. And I think you're thinking about it incorrectly, which is you're thinking about Coinbase basically as a platform to exchange Bitcoin and being tied to Bitcoin. Because at that point in time, that's basically what it was. Right. Yep. But yep. the way we think about the business is it's basically a tra- it's basically a transaction platform for all cryptocurrencies. And remember, in that t- period of time, you know, kind of late 2016, early 20, 2017 or so, that was not obvious. Like maybe if you were super into crypto, you were what, looking what, at what all these different currencies. Like, is she mm-hmm. talking about like, actually using crypto to buy real things? I mean, like, you know, when, when Tesla no, wants no, to no. accept so, Bitcoin, right, to yeah. like, you know, buy vehicles, that's not powered by Coinbase. No, no, not at all. So what, what she was talking about was she was talking about it basically being an exchange platform in the same way that NASDAQ or New York Stock Exchange or any of these, uh, you know, are, are exchange Okay, but like platforms. end users, you know, like like the users of smartphones don't really have a relationship with NASDAQ, at least as, as far as I can tell. Like maybe they buy, you know, some of NASDAQ's products, but not in a conventional everyday, day in and day out kind of way in which you might touch Apple Pay, Right. So help, yeah, help me like okay. connect what, what Megan's saying to this future potential, like, you know, business that the Coinbase is going to have? Well, I think they're, I think they're different businesses, first off. And I, and I think that's actually what points to the opportunity being so large, right? Okay. Mm-hmm. So when you have the squares, et cetera, of the world, I mean, those are payment gateways, payment platforms, right? right. That's, right. that's their business, yep. right? And so when they're thinking about, hey, we need to have a fiat on-ramp, right? The way that they're thinking about it is not so much we need to have a fiat on-ramp so you can just store cryptocurrency as an investable asset for the sake of it. They're thinking about that as the reserve currency of the world is the dollar. The vast majority of currency is in fiat-backed currencies. And so if we ever want any sort of transaction system right, that is exchanging cryptocurrency at any meaningful scale, we have to develop a fiat on-ramp. Now, in the same way, businesses like Coinbase, Kraken, etc., are also solving for that fiat on-ramp problem, but not because of increasing purchasing proficiency. Right? They're, they're creating that fiat on-ramp. Because if there's no fiat on-ramp, there's no ways for people to translate dollars right. into crypto, right? So I think right. they're different businesses. I think one set of businesses, the visas, the squares, you know, the cash apps, et cetera, of the world, I think there is a lesion there around how does cryptocurrency, you know, form as a transaction mechanism. And then for these other businesses, the Coinbases, the Krakens, et cetera, of the world, you know, they're pure play exchanges. And I, I think part of the nuance and what's interesting is, you know, as we kind of head into this new world, there's no clear, you know, example um, by definition because this new financial system is different than the legacy financial system. So you're right. You know, 
we don't really have quote unquote relationships with the Nasdaq or so. Now the companies that we invest in via platforms like E-Trade, Robinhood, et cetera, obviously have relationships, you know, with with those exchanges. If those exchanges did not exist, you know, all of these front-facing platforms like the Robinhoods, et cetera, of the world would have zero utility because we wouldn't really be able to buy right, anything. Right. It's like, right? well, yeah, what did you buy with them? Yeah. Exactly. Right. So I I think of it as two different businesses. And look, you know, as like one of the things that I think is really interesting about, you know, the kind of the space generally is, you know, folks talk a lot about Coinbase and obviously we're we're talking about Coinbase and their numbers are phenomenal. But, you know, Coinbase has been driven by retail investors, right? Like companies like Kraken and a couple of these other exchanges have very sophisticated products from an institutional perspective. And so you could actually make a, a pretty clean, I think, and compelling argument, you know, that Coinbase is a little bit ahead, right? And part of it is because they really rode this retail wave. But as we've seen in retail, you know, eventually retail fees go to zero. And so that is an inherent risk in the business that they're going to have to translate towards. And when you look at other institutional capabilities, things like bank charters, so on and so forth, you could make the argument, you know, the Krakens, the Geminis, et cetera, of the world are very sophisticated on on that lens, right? So I think it's, I think to go back to your earlier kind of point, Chris, it's, it's two different types of businesses. That's the uh-huh. main framing. But I just think there's so much room to run here that, you know, it's hard to, it, it, there will be competition and there will be effects of that. You know, that always, you know, competition affects uh, pressure on margins, things like that. But I think yeah. there's just so much room to run that, and there's so many possibilities we still don't know of. It's it's going to shake out in a way that I think is, is going to, you know, win or, you know, it's gonna. It's not gonna be a zero sum game, basically. Yeah, I mean, I think what, what I'm stuff. what I'm trying to, you know, and and, and again, like my bias um, is is more towards like consumer, and so I'm trying to sort of understand this and put this into that perspective. Whereas to me, Coinbase is obviously more more in the fintech space, more in the financialization space, and to me, inherently, uh, you know, money is just a different beast when it comes to just the personal relationship that people have to that and to finance and to all of those different topics and conversations relative to entertainment, celebrity, sports, like those things which feel more accessible and which, you know, at least power the wave of like social media. So what's, I guess what I'm trying to also think about with this future is if Coinbase has 56 million customers of which 6 million are active today, I don't fully have a grasp on what those 6 million people are doing. Like if they're big time traders and they're like, like doing day trading of, um, you know, individual coins and they're just doing like the leverage and they're, it's like a whole new financialization and financial market. But to me, that feels much less accessible than even something like a Robinhood where, you know, the, the, the stocks that you're buying and selling are, you know, to some degree household names or they're nostalgic or whatever it is. And there's a relationship to the thing that you're buying. The abstraction of cryptocurrency to me puts this in a realm beyond what, I mean, you, you literally have to be sort of a very online person who like lives a lot on the internet to kind of understand the things I think that we're talking about, which is the future potential of where this is going. And so I guess like when I'm thinking about like the long term of this, on the one hand, I'm trying to gauge how fast this is going to happen and how, I mean, so there, okay, there's two other angles now that I'm thinking about where, where this could grow really, really fast in a way that we, we don't have a lot of antecedents for. One of which is just a younger generation grows up and crypto is like totally normal to them because, you know, they're used to, you know, World of Warcraft or Minecraft and buying things in the virtual world. And so a little bit, another... a little bit ding, ding, ding. Uh, yeah. Uh, what does that mean? I mean, I think that that's part of it, but go on. You make it, make your okay. second point. Yeah. All right. So the first part is just that there's a younger generation that grows up where they are, let's say, crypto native. Then the other part 
is the rest of the world, which is underbanked or unbanked or China. And in those parts of the world, I can imagine them adopting these things very, very quickly because they're built into the apps by default. And rather than, you know, you, you had this conversation um, with Pomp recently uh, about how, um, you know, it's in, in some ways we're the United States or, you know, the West may be at a disadvantage because we are well banked and we have credit cards. And so the need and the pain to move to something different is much less. Whereas in other parts of the world, they're just getting the stuff for the first time. So the things they're going to learn as their first exposure to financialization could be crypto or DeFi. So those are the two aspects of this that seem to me uh, like likely to accelerate this trend versus Coinbase coming in and being a replacement for existing financial instruments that people are used to in the West. So how does that square with maybe how you think about the future potential for Coinbase? Yeah, I mean, the, I guess the way I think about it, it so uh, again, a couple of things that we just unpack what you were saying. I mean, I think one thing you're saying, which is absolutely right, is <clears throat> if you look at emerging economies or developing economies, this always happens, right? So there's a reason why in Africa and in India, et cetera, they've accelerated to their mobile moment and they move past landlines. This always right. happens in technology, yeah. right? Yeah, which is leapfrogging. Mm-hmm. Exactly, right? There's, there's kind of a leapfrogging moment. Um, but I think one of the things, like, you know, what I would challenge is, kind of this idea of, you know, hey, you go on Robinhood and you buy kind of household names and that's, you know, more secure or there's, that's more, it's more familiar, secure, but it's more, it's more familiar, et cetera, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, the argument that I would make is like, you go on Robinhood and you, and you, you know, you invest in companies that you're, you believe are more familiar, but how many people are out there investing in like every cloud stock that folks on, you know, in tech, VC, whatever, Twitter talk about all day long, Right. I mean, if you're on, if you're in kind of tech Twitter, you're familiar with all of these cloud companies, right? The Bessemer Index. I mean, down yeah. to kind of the 40, yeah. 50 tickers in there. Sure. But who, if, if you're not kind of involved in like tech Twitter or so, or you're not a hedge fund or, you know, looking at kind of this sector of the market, I mean, I, I don't know if I would make the claim that, you know, going on Robinhood and, um, and buying HubSpot or buying, you know, uh, Shopify or any of these stocks is super common or super familiar. I mean, they're starting to get more and more familiar as they become larger and larger businesses and they cross over into more and more kind of quote unquote non-tech right type folks and they they infiltrate into real businesses and into real consumers. And I put real kind of in quotes, which is you know not people in in a tech echo chamber or ecosystem uh, ecosystem. Um, and I think that's what's happening with Bitcoin, right? I mean, five years ago. Right. There's a reason why Coinbase as a business was the size it was is because the addressable market and, and the potential folks that were buying this stuff right. were were not as familiar with it. Right. And it was fringe and it was weird and it was, you know, hey, is this a scam? And things like Mount Gox were happening. And it was the wild, wild. Oh, west, my God. Right. Yeah, that was huge. Mm-hmm. Right. But yeah. now it's totally the opposite. And I think to your to your earlier point of kind of you're going to have a generation that grows up and this is just familiar to them. I think it's the same concept. Right. Like. Our generation grew up on internet companies. They're native to us. Like we don't call yeah. we don't call these companies internet companies. We don't call them dot com companies. They're just businesses, right? I mean, they're just yeah. businesses. Yeah. And yeah. that's exactly what's going to keep happening with crypto. Now, I, I think what we often try to do in technology is we often try to look at an emerging trend and immediately say, you know, we have to find every use case for this. Here are the use cases why this works, here are the use cases why it doesn't. But this is super early, right? I mean, things are going to naturally, fees are going to go lower, transaction speed's going to go higher, security's going to be better. Crypto, we're going to be, when we're talking about crypto in 10 years, and we're already seeing it, right? 
that's one of the exciting things about when you think about, you know, these exchange businesses and you think about, you know, these hype cycles or when crypto's price goes up, when it goes down, et cetera. What hasn't been going down is the number of developers that have been entering the, the ecosystem, the number of projects that have been getting started, right? And the amount of mindshare that's been attentive to crypto generally. That has been consistently rising year over year at, at significant cagers, right? And so that's that's the part that, you know, a lot of us kind of in mainstream don't look at. We look at things like what's the price of Bitcoin, et cetera. These are all proxies for what's going on underneath, which is crypto is just becoming more and more pervasive, more and more popular. And yeah, I think it's like an index on belief in this new system or, yeah, or use think, of this new system. I think that's exactly right. And I, yeah. I think if, if you're one of these exchange businesses, it's hard to find us. It's, it's hard to look at a scenario in which you don't look at that. Is just overtly bullish for your business. I don't know how that necessarily translates exactly into the business structure today, necessarily, other than, you know, buying and selling cryptocurrencies, because that is, you know, 80, 90, whatever plus percent of Coinbase's business. Like that is the business. But if you have that level of activity, that level of project, that level of innovation, that level of talent, it's hard to see how derivative products don't exist. And then, you know, well positioned, trusted brands like a Coinbase, a Kraken, et cetera, enter those spaces. Romain, uh, if you don't mind, I, I'd like to put a pin on on this topic uh, by uh, asking one more sort of funny question. Um, and then you're, you're welcome to stay for other topics as well. But um, I, I said this on the show today. How should we think about the fact that, at least at this point, the biggest business built in the crypto space is sort of antithetical to crypto ideals in the sense that, you know, crypto is all about decentralized everything. And essentially, Coinbase is a centralized marketplace. Like, is there anything we should learn from that? Or what, what, what do you think about that? Yeah, it's a really good question. And it kind of ties to, I know over the last week or so, there's been a lot of news of China and kind of developing a coin. And, and we can talk about that if you guys are interested. But I, I think it's, it's interesting, right? I mean, in one sense, you're right. It is totally antithetical. I think that's why, again, amongst kind of like, you know, fringe crypto enthusiasts, not not really fringe, but I mean, like cutting edge kind of crypto enthusiasts, there's all this excitement around DeFi, right? Because again, the ethos of crypto is decentralization. But look, I, I think it's really hard. I think it's really hard to have any sort of concerted or aligned movement if you don't have some sort of centralization, Right. So I would make the argument that it'd be very difficult to gain mass adoption because of the way that we are psychologically programmed, because of the other products that we use, and because of the kind of cultural inbaked norms we have in our brains and our DNA to basically just have mass adoption of a system that has ultimate decentralization. And again, I'll give another analogy. You know, self-driving cars, let's say, again, conservatively, takes 30, 40 years, and it's like super safe. It's been proven kind of time and time again. It's like 99.99999% safe. You're not going to get into an accident, et cetera. It's going to be really hard for people like us that grew up driving cars to just completely cede control, right? Like our kids or our kids' kids that grew up in a system where they had self-driving cars from day one, they never had licenses, like all of that is foreign concepts to them. That's just going to be the way of the world, right? But for people that had control to then give up control, like as human beings, we are very tied to control, right? And knowing things, even if it's the unknown, we want to know about it. I think it's just very hard when you have mass markets working in centralized financial systems, where you feel like, you know, I've got a bank, 
I've got, you know, it's a reputed name brand. It is something, you know, I can trust, et cetera. I know they have a physical branch. Like all those things don't actually matter, but what where they do matter is on your psychology, right? And so I think it's going to be interesting to see how all this, you know, evolves. I mean, Coinbase themselves, Coinbase ben- via Coinbase Ventures, has made a ton of interesting investments in DeFi and just, you know, the decentralized ecosystem generally. Uh, but I don't think you could have, um, I don't think you would have mass market adoption purely from a bottoms up decentralized way, right? So I think a centralized fiat on ramp type mechanism is just required for this thing to even have a shot at getting off the ground. Let's be real for a minute. Most guys would wear a t-shirt every day of their lives if they could. The problem is that most t-shirts are not acceptable to wear at work or out on a hot date night. But today's sponsor, Cuts, has finally changed that. Cuts t-shirts are such high-quality, wrinkle-free, and so buttery soft that you can look like you're dressing up even when you're dressing down. Yeah, you heard that. Wrinkle-free. You never have to substitute comfort for fashion ever again. If you see me in a t-shirt, it's likely one from Cuts. I'm also a huge fan of their AO5 pocket pants, the right sort of step up from jeans without going all the way into dress pants, like literally my ideal Venn diagram of professional looking but comfortable feeling. When you touch something from Cuts, you can immediately feel the quality. Their proprietary fabric blends are ridiculously soft and breathable, they don't wrinkle, and they look way more expensive than they actually are. For a limited time, our listeners get 20% off your entire order when you use code RIDE at checkout. That's 20% off your order at cutsclothing.com with promo code RIDE. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. Experience the perfect blend of style and comfort with Cuts Clothing. Cutsclothing.com, promo code RIDE for 20% off. When you go through airport security, there's one line where the TSA agent checks your ID and another line where a machine scans your bag. The same thing happens in enterprise security, but instead of passengers and luggage, it's end users and their devices. These days, most companies are pretty good at the first part of the equation where they check user identity, but user devices can roll right through authentication without getting inspected at all. In fact, 47% of companies allow unmanaged, untrusted devices to access their data. That means an employee can log in from a laptop that has its firewall turned off and hasn't been updated in six months. Or worse, that laptop might belong to a bad actor using employee credentials. Collide finally solves the device trust problem. Collide ensures that no device can log into your Okta-protected apps unless it passes your security checks. Plus, you can use Collide on devices without MDM, like your Linux fleet, contractor devices, and every BYOD phone and laptop in your company. Visit collide.com slash ride to watch a demo and see how it all works. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash ride, collide.com slash ride. So one, one thing that I'll, that I'll bring up in this context, in this paradigm, which I think is relevant because, you know, of course, we want to look at past, uh, I don't know, examples, behavior, like successes, and try to predict the future from what's happened before. And where my mind goes in that sense is to think about, you know, if you're saying that Coinbase, you know, either through angel investing or not angel, through just like investing through Coinbase Ventures or through its just presence in the marketplace, that it becomes something of a kingmaker for the next set of products or applications that are built in the crypto space. Facebook had that role to some extent, thanks to um, its, you know, creation and propagation of the Facebook platform. And of course, there were a number of outcomes that were 
let's say, not so, we're, we're somewhat problematic <laughs> and we're still dealing with those things. It does feel like in this case, what's interesting is that, you know, if there was such a thing as Coinbase Connect, the fact that Coinbase is so regulated, that there are so many financial regulations that exist on the institutions that participate in this world, unlike the world of social media and social technology um, that really got its, you know, kind of, mm, I don't know, became prominent around 2009, 2010, that suggests that the types of things and how people build them will be different. And there will be a level of, I don't want to say like total protection and, and you know, care built into them, but it may prevent some of the, the distortions and the abuses that occurred in the unregulated market space. So it's, I suppose on, on the one hand, what I'm sort of imagining is that the types of things that Coinbase wants to see built will be built and they'll be built with a different, I don't know, sort of like restrictions on how those things are built because of all the regulations that are inherited from the financial world. And I don't know if that will have an inhibitory effect or it will just create maybe slower innovation, but more robust innovation that actually goes deeper and longer than the types of things where, you know, you built like a Zynga or whatever, and it was, you know, cool for like five minutes while it was hot. But then, of course, people became, you know, really inured to it because they got annoyed or there was like, you know, exploits and hacks and attacks and so on and so forth. So I'm curious, like how you look at Coinbase being an operator in the space and driving innovation relative to the DeFi community, which is really about decentralization, which is really about protocols and white papers and, you know, I don't know where or if interop is going to happen in, in like a number of these places or if that even matters, because it is a bit of like a wild, wild west out there. But Coinbase seems to be rising above the fray in so many ways. And as you say, on the one hand, there's the fiat on ramp, which is maybe symbolic of the broader, I don't know, approach to and, and, and I don't want to say this without really knowing it, but like to be somewhat more responsible as a player in the space relative to those that have come along and just sort of exploited their ICOs and then, you know, went bust quickly. You know, I, I guess I think about, it's like, it's, it's interesting to me to also put this in, in the context of the creator economy because the Kin cryptocurrency was built by the guys who are building Substack right now. So a lot of the same ideas are being recycled by a lot of the same people, but they're finding different outlets for those energies and for those ideas. Um, and again, like I guess I'm trying to just like, like replay the success of Facebook and wondering if Coinbase will have a civil, similar role historically um, in the in the crypto DeFi world. Yeah, a, a lot there, and I'm by no means a DeFi expert, so I'll, I'll kind of sure, caveat sure. that, right? But yeah, I, I yeah. think there's a couple of things there, right? Which is, you know, I, if you look at just Facebook and Coinbase, like businesses aside, I think there is a distinction, which is Facebook is really an N of one business. Uh, and Coinbase is a one of N business. And what I mean by that is Coinbase is one of several exchanges. You know, they have grown their market share quite precipitously over the last two years. I think from around five, five to five and a half percent to about 10 to 11 percent or so. Mm -hmm. But they have 11 percent market share. Uh, that is a very, very different market type dynamic and a very different market structure than a company like Facebook. So I think the the influence, the leverage businesses than it is in one of N businesses, I think what it also does not for distribution. And that's where social media business and of one business from an exchange perspective 
but then they are also an N of one business, oh, sorry, a one of N business from an exchange perspective. They are also, you can make the argument, a one of N business from the crypto transaction payment layer type ecosystem. They by no means have a monopoly on that ecosystem, whereas you can very well make the argument that when you look at businesses like Facebook, businesses like Google, these are N of one businesses. If you want distribution, yeah, if you yeah. want to show up in search engine results, you're on Google and you got to play by their rules. If you want to be in the Apple App Store, you got to play by their rules. If you want to reach people, you know, through social media, et cetera, you got to play by Facebook's rules. And after they picked up Instagram and WhatsApp and right on and on and on, you got to play by their rules. This is not that type of business. And so while I think they will have that type of influence, and again, I, th- I think there's just so much unknown in terms of how these use cases are going to evolve. Um, you know, over the next 10, 15 years. Um, I, I don't think they're going to have that level of influence. And, and again, and just to kind of bring it back to the perspective, right? right? This business is 10 years old, right? So the fact that they've gone from kind of total fringe, you know, only the super fringe technology maximalist 10 years ago to where the business is right now, this is going to be, it's going to be a totally different world, you know, in the next ecosystem is Coinbase isn't the only one trying to do something capital, et cetera, that's going into the ecosystem is, is increasing as I would say fundamentally different. Got it. Uh, we're it's we're getting a little bit of, I think audio breakup, and I'm going to blame Spaces since it's still in beta. Um, but I think I, I understand your broader point that the, the 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 business that Coinbase is in is different than the business that Facebook was in, and therefore there will be many I don't want to say like many Coinbases, but of course the the competitive marketplace is different because of the relationship of the asset that Coinbase is uh, I guess harvesting or allowing people to interact and transact with. Um, whereas when it comes to personal data and relationships, like one of, and one of the things that's interesting about you know Coinbase in general is that I would imagine that Coinbase only benefits and becomes more powerful and more relevant the more people use it. In other words, that the greater the network effect of crypto, the more salience Coinbase has to you know many many more businesses and consumers. So that at least suggests that many many more boats will rise as Coinbase finds success. Because that will also spell the like the, the, the rise of the distribution of, of crypto more generally. I think there was a there was a tweet today that I almost used that was something. I like think that's that. exactly right, and, and I'm not sure how much. Uh, rising all boats, rising all boats. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, that's exactly right. Sorry, guys, I think I'm I'm kind of dropping in and out. It might be a lag on my side, but it's yeah, I yeah. think that's exactly right. Which is these businesses, you know, n of one businesses and one of n businesses are just fundamentally different. The market structures are fundamentally different, and kind of the evolution of these markets generally because of that dynamic are are fundamentally different. Cool. Okay, so so let's let's put a pause in the Coinbase story, and if you know you're 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 more than welcome and, and invited to stick around. Um, in fact, we'd love to hear a little bit more about the China coin, if I can call it that. Um, yeah, which is just mind-blowing in some respects, well, in many respects, partially because if I'm 
uh, like positioning that and, and you can go into a little bit more about what it actually is and what it means and what it sounds like. Cause I don't have the details straight, but when I think about like what Biden's doing with the infrastructure plan and all the money being spent there and the, the way in which the stimulus checks came out, you're kind of looking at that and you're like, wow, it feels like we're still in the seventies. And then China's like, Oh fuck it. We're just going to like do DeFi and, or, well, I actually, it's specifically not DeFi. It's the, uh, centralized FI, <laughs> but, but it's like, we're going to use blockchain and crypto to enable the government to be able to uh, interact with currency in a very different way. That's such like way more trackable, traceable, and actually works against many of the anonymity. uh, Well, yeah, let me, uh, Chris, let me, let me jump in and and, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to quote from the, the, the wall street. Oh, sorry. Exactly. Uh, uh, I'm going to quote from the, the Wall Street Journal uh, piece that um, I did uh, yesterday, which is it's not just um, it's it's not <laughs> it's not just like uh, it's more trackable and things like that. It's it's literally if they have this new digital yuan that's going to come out, um, it's literally programmable. So um, quoting here from the journal piece, Beijing has tested expiration dates on the currency to encourage users to spend it wow. quickly for times when the economy needs a jump start. It's also trackable, adding another tool to China's heavy state surveillance. The government deploys hundreds of millions of facial recognition cameras to monitor its population, sometimes using them to levy fines for activities such as jaywalking. So a digital currency would make it possible to both mete out and collect fines as soon as an infraction was detected. And th- that's ending the quote right there. But I also said, you know, Forget about, forget about all that stuff. Like, you know, think about like levying taxes and things like that. In essence, this is this we're, we're, we're continuing to talk about cryptocurrency. If cryptocurrency was a dream built on like freeing um, money from the sovereignty of states, like this is the complete inverse of that where the government can literally take the, the money in your wallet and disappear it depending on whatever infraction you have, whatever taxes you owe, or whatever, or or, or just it's it's another level of monitoring what you do in your daily life. Um, yeah, that was kind of a mind blowing thing. That's why I, I I devoted so much to it yesterday. Yeah, I mean the China coin in general is just it's a really interesting topic. So you know, backstory kind of for everybody that's listening is, and I think this broke, you know, a couple of days ago, I think the Times might have, you know, had a, had a piece on it. But basically, Ramin, uh, just to, China, if, you, if you leave the room on a version of it, and then come back, currency, and then it might fix the lag. It'd be con- Maybe I'll DM him. If you can hear us, Romain, uh, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, I think he left, and maybe he'll come back, and then we'll try that then. Okay, good, good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I think we had this this issue with Twitter Spaces last time around this time, too. Right, because I, I, I was the one, you vanished. I was the yeah. one that couldn't be heard all of a sudden. You so. went into the, the Bermuda Triangle, that's right. Uh, uh, well, that's the other thing, is like, now, if we see him come back, can you see him? Oh, right, we have to make him a speaker. Yeah. Let's see. Uh, well, okay. Uh, 
One thing that I, I did want to point out, though, you pointed out how uh, some of the currency may actually have an expiration. Oh, here he is. He's connecting right now. Okay, cool. I awesome. think he'll be given the ability to speak when he returns. Um, but there are actually, I think there are there are like these civic coins or something that communities. Uh, what are they called? Uh, New York had these, um, and I know that actually. I think you covered this on the coronavirus ride home show like a year ago, and the idea was to create these local currencies that you had to spend within a certain geographic radius and they would expire. So people mm. wouldn't actually save them and they were motivated to actually create currency. In other words, the movement, you know, like the capillary system of movement of, of value. And so that idea is actually not that crazy. Although of course, when you think about sort of like the China, you know, Chinese government, I, I don't know, like there's just sort of like this Western slash American response is, Oh, it's, you know, it must be terrible, but actually it's, it's kind of fascinating to imagine the things that you could do in terms of, motivating certain behaviors well, or I, demotivating others i mean yeah I listen remains pro- back let me see yeah uh, I mean, are you here can we hear you maybe okay brian go ahead i was gonna say programmable currency right <laughs> there there's insane things you can do with that um <laughs> for better or worse yes well <laughs> i mean uh, right so um you know the, the the best case scenario is is like again and i think the journal piece suggested this that like all right you have a you have a uh, recession then you can um you can you know, double the value of your currency for a certain amount of time and things like that. Or you have a, a natural disaster and you need to infuse sort, you know, uh, um, capital into a certain area to like, um, you know, backstop sort of uh, recovery and things like that. Right. Uh, programmable money is amazing. Um, but at the same time, all of the programmable money also means that, you know, in a sense, um, if you think about how cash and fiat currency has always functioned, um, it's always functioned. This is, this is a crazy analogy that I'm just coming up with right now. Um, it's, it's like in the TV and uh, magazine era where you had to buy ads where you assumed the audience was, but you didn't know how many people actually saw your ad. Right. <laughs> so now, um, it, it, the governments have always been able to like, well, we know how much currency we have in circulation. We know how much is going here. We know how much inflation is happening. But now, it, it, this is the, it, it's the era of it's impossible not to know. It's the era of like surveillance capitalism in the sense that we know that there's dollars sitting in your wallet. We know what you spent it on. We know that, by the way, we caught you on this camera. And so, um, you, 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 uh, you, you, Jay, walked and we can and and but also we can ding you if we decide that we don't like you right and so that's that's I mean, the orwellian dark stuff. so fast right because like, yeah i i, I kind of feel like you we, we have no credibility in this conversation until or if we start designing like the usd crypto coin because it feels like the u.s government would probably do similar things that's like, a, that's another story which i feel like if romaine can come back i feel like he'll have something on that but, but keep, okay. keep going because i will have if he doesn't come back Okay. Well, I guess I think I'm back. Great. Okay. Yes, we can hear you. Um, yeah, I'll just, I'll just like say my part, which, which is, I think that it's a mistake to, I don't know, like to let these, these stories like get away from us in the sense that, you know, a couple of years ago, all the conversations like this is like 2016, um, were about creating like the WeChat of the West and like Facebook was, you know, enamored with that idea, seemed to be pursuing it. That was like the whole bot thing that was going on. Um, but it, it sort of, misunderstood or took the wrong message from and 
the, like our culture doesn't really support the types of things that enable a WeChat of the East to exist and to thrive. So in a similar way, like I feel like we, uh, I don't know, in the in the U.S. marketplace, we are resistant to some of these ideas because they seem quote unquote un-American or they seem like they're not part of our culture. And yet, the the, the frustration that we have with government also could be solved if we actually moved in this direction. So the Orwellian things that you're worried about, I feel like either can be addressed through, uh, this is going to sound so naive, but like whether it's like smart contracts or more transparency or other types of mechanisms that we just haven't invented yet and haven't thought to work on because we're either so lazy or so paranoid that we just don't want to go down that path and engage with these questions. So I just, I don't know, I would push us to be more thoughtful and intentional in this conversation than to say, Oh, because China's doing it, it must be bad. With everybody fighting for attention, how can your business stand out and connect with customers? Easy. Get Constant Contact. Constant Contact's award-winning marketing platform has helped millions of small businesses stand out, stay top of mind, and see big results fast. Constant Contact makes it easy to promote your business with powerful tools like email and SMS marketing, social media posting, and even events management. With Constant Contact, you'll reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and communicate more effectively to sell more, raise more, and fast-track growth. Don't know much about marketing? No sweat. Constant Contact's writing assistance tools and automation features Features help you say the right thing at the right time, every time. Plus, you can send with confidence knowing your emails are actually reaching your customers thanks to Constant Contact's best-in-class 97% deliverability rate. I use this, and you should too. Tackle any challenge with Constant Contact's expert live customer support. Plus, everything's backed by their 30-day money-back guarantee, so get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple of things there. I think one is, um, one is there's, and we kind of saw it with the pandemic, right? Like you, you can compare, if you compare cultures and you think of kind of Eastern cultures, like I'm, I'm Indian by, by my native, and you think of Eastern cultures, right? Philosophically, the way that Eastern cultures operate is it's much more unit driven. Um, and that the way that cultures, Western cultures especially operate is it's more individual or solo driven. And and their strengths yeah, like collective versus Yeah, collective yeah. versus individual. Yeah. yeah. And there's strengths and weaknesses that come out of that. I mean, I think there's a lot of reason why you see so much innovation from the West. I think there's a reason why you see, you know, a lot of kind of group oriented or collective oriented activity or nature or so that needs to be developed in a certain way coming out and emanating, you know, from the East. Um, I do think though, on this issue, there is a good perspective on the U S side, which is, you know, this does start to get a little Orwellian. Um, and let me, let me paint the picture in a, in a couple of different ways from the China side. Right. Sure. So what's happening in, in China right now, you know, with this rise is, you know, Chinese citizens themselves are not responding positively. So cash circulation of the yuan over the last year has gone up to about 10% or so. And it's specifically because people don't want the Chinese government monitoring not only every element of the economy, but every element basically of citizenry, right? From a macro perspective, more broadly outside of China, this can actually be very dangerous if the U.S. doesn't do something about it. So dollar is obviously the world's global reserve currency. Um, and if that changes, especially to a Chinese-backed authoritarian currency, that would have serious 
deal with totally. ramifications, yeah, right? Hundred um, percent. The Times, I think, had a piece on this a couple of days ago, where they basically had an example of you know how Carrie Lam, who's China's top official in Hong Kong, you know she had sanctions basically levied against her, and she had a stockpile of cash, I think, in her house because banks basically feared you know that if they accepted her business, they'd risk exposing themselves to a U.S. freeze. Um, well, a digital yuan changes that, right? I mean, you can exchange money without U.S. knowledge. You don't need the SWIFT system. You know, basically money can start moving um, without U.S. infrastructure monitoring it. So the effect of things like sanctions all over the world, money laundering, you know, money moving to different powers between different sovereigns, et cetera, starts to change dramatically. I mean, a lot of the Swiss monetary laws, the reason why there's a lot less, you know, um, black box rules in the Swiss system now is because the U.S. basically said, hey, you know, we're either not going to play ball and we're going to make you return every U.S. citizen's money and, and expose it or you need to play by our rules, right? So there, there is, you know, this is a calculated move by China. It's a building block for them to move in, into the global economy, like actually be integrated into the global economy versus just being an isolated, you know, participant. Right. Yeah. Um, right. So we have to do, we have to do something about that, right? So whether it's, whether the answer is a USD, you know, currency, uh, et cetera, it's, it's unclear. I think there's a lot of arguments on kind of both sides. And, and it goes again to the kind of this antithesis of having a centralized system, um, creating a, you know, operating a decentralized currency. Uh, but it's certainly the case that we, you know, when Facebook was developing this, I think it was chided by a lot of U.S. legislators and it was shut down because it's a U.S. company and U.S. regulations can can facilitate that. Uh, but now that China is effectively doing the same thing, it's it's definitely a national security issue. Yeah. So I... Um I, I did mention that in in when I uh, quoted this piece uh, yesterday, but um, then I went down a rabbit hole last night and I tweeted. So I didn't share this on the show. Forgive me. Um, but last night I tweeted. I was like, "Oh my god! I just realized that by the end of the decade, we are a hundred percent going to have uh, a USD backed um, digital cryptocurrency." Because this makes so much sense. Like. When you think of the idea of being a superpower and and these geopolitical things, one of the many ways that the U.S. has been the superpower for the last hundred years, um, especially since World War One, is because we have the the global reserve currency that everyone can trust. And like I can see the angle that um, if Beijing can create a different kind of currency that is that is easier for for people to use and 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 almost because you know look i i I am ecuadorian ecuador uses the u.s dollar they don't have their own peso (laughs) like you know so like it's it's not only soft power it's like literal um hard uh um sovereignty power in terms of like your your monetary base like the idea that china can see that if if this sort of like digital currency stuff is the new way to break down borders, like that's the way to create the sort of um, soft empire that, that the United States has enjoyed uh, since the 20th century. Well, I mean, what about the fact that like, at least as I understand it, and again, I listen to The Economist, and so that's partially where I'm getting this from, but where China is actually showing a lot more influence in places like India, Australia, uh, Africa, and in, in, in those cases, if they move in and they start banking folks with their cryptocurrency, doesn't that create a, a type of moat that we, we've never even seen before? We don't even like understand. Again, it's like one of those problems where you know, superpowers end up fighting like the last war and the last battle. And we have a lot of legitimacy from all the things that we've done 
you know, since World War II. But of course, you can't rest on your laurels. And so, I don't know, I, I just find that, like, this move is so interesting. And it's like parsing the reality from the fiction. And that's really hard to do. But, Ramin, as, as, as you're saying, it's like, you know, Chinese citizens are against this as well. Then is it just a matter of time? Like, will the frog be boiled? Or, or will there actually be sort of like a resistance to this and people will just not use it, uh, you know, in terms of adopting this as a, I don't know, as an instrument of, of, of value? Yeah, I mean, I think this is why, and I'm going to have to drop right after this, so I appreciate yep, you guys having me on, though. But I, I think just to kind of round out from my side, I, it's interesting. I mean, I think there's, this is a lot of the reason why you see a lot of Chinese money outside of China, right? Because a lot yep, of wealthy right. people in China are extremely yep. paranoid yep. that their money is going to be seized by the government, and not just their money, but, you know, if there is this complete knowledge from the state, you know, over... Uh, where folks' assets are, how much they have, etc., you know, it can start to get wielded against them. I mean, we've seen this in Russia where Putin has effectively taken out everybody that's had money, you know, in that country, either through, you know, fake, uh, you know, fake crimes well, being I mean, planted or, or so people on and in China, so forth, right? right? Have been shut so down under, yeah, house arrest. Yeah, house yeah, arrest, exactly, totally. right? So I think there is a big resistance to this. I think when you have a power like China come in with that amount and number of people, it definitely becomes interesting, but I I imagine there would be there would there would be significant resistance not only internally from Chinese citizens and I think you're seeing that like I, would, I had alluded to earlier with the with the circulation of the yuan uh, with the cash yuan, but you're going to see a lot of international powers you know start to band together to try to either levy sanctions or or basically prevent that from happening. So it'll be it'll be interesting because there's there's a lot of kind of geopolitical ramifications and and certainly you know technology ramifications that'll come out of all of this. Awesome. Well, I know you've got a drop. Um, it was it was uh, amazing to have you here. I think you've, you've definitely educated us and um, uh, the tech meme listenership. So um, yeah, I I, I I was not aware of you before today, but uh, man, you're amazing and awesome. <laughs> and so please, you're always welcome back. And I also just point out, so though, uh, Ramin does the Square One podcast, and um, I did. I've listened to a couple episodes now, and there's just like. Uh, amazing set of connections there and, and folks to listen to. So you can go find that in your podcast app. Um, you know, if you want to learn more about what he does and who he talks to. Appreciate it guys. Thanks for having me on. This was, this was fun jamming on Coinbase. Awesome. Thanks so much. All right. Thanks. Take care. Yeah. All right. So I, before, before we wrap up, um, I'm bringing up Emil um, from, from the audience. I guess he has something to contribute. So as he pulls up here, let's see where'd he go. Okay. Emil, what's up? Hey, can you guys hear me okay? I know Twitter Sounds good. Sounds for Android good. is not reliable. Okay. Um, yeah, I just wanted to, to push back a little bit on the, the idea that Chinese citizens would be against this, or, or rather how many would be, like what percentage. Sure. Just sure. because I feel like that's a narrative that, you know, the West wants to believe in, and uh, our policies have kind of failed when dealing with China <laughs> because mm-hmm. of that. Um, and the average, I would say, Chinese citizen, just from their perspective, um, you know, the government has done good by them, right? The middle class has exploded. Um, and, you know, if you do interviews in China, again, the, the average citizen is very happy with, with what we would consider, you know, Orwellian things the government does there as net good for them. Are you, are you um, speaking as someone who has interviewed people in China? Yeah, but okay, okay. To be clear, it's not like I've interviewed thousands or something like that. Sure, sure. Uh, I've just, you know, like, for example, I I like articles by the rest of the world. They've done some very interesting takes that are kind of Uh, like 
yep. counter narratives of like what we in the West, you know, think of what um, certain events that happen in, in China and other parts of Asia and well, the rest of the world. Um, so I'm just I'm just kind of throwing that out there. Uh, I'm not saying, you know, one person is wrong here and one person is right, but it wouldn't surprise me. I mean, going back to what I was said earlier in the conversation where, you, you know, you had to grow up with certain things. You know, if a bunch of citizens grow up with with digital currencies and this is how the digital yuan works and it's always worked like that, you might, you know, push back on parts of it. But if there's all these other positives of having a digital yuan, you know, you, like, <laughs> you know, we, I feel like the Great Firewall of China was seen as like inevitably going to collapse. And yet that didn't happen. China has successfully, you know, um, kind of turned off free speech in the country well and, and also i mean in theory <laughs> in theory what helps is you might not have a choice <laughs> right yeah of course i'm not saying I'm, i mean it could be very well that um you know they're all unhappy there um but yeah and that's another way of taking it right if what does it matter if at the end of the day it still works right if if all of china just like they have a censored version of the internet there if they all are using a cryptocurrency and it just works and there's you know, these bad effects of it, but there's also a bunch of positives, like cryptocurrencies do have, you know, their, their positives. Um, anyway, just the thought, I just wanted to throw that out there that um, it might not go the way that we would think it would go based on our values and what we've yeah, grown up with. I think it's really important. And that's partially also why, like, I, I will acknowledge the vast amount of ignorance, you know, that I have generally about China, you know, I've been there for all of like 10 hours in my life. And so I don't pretend to have intimate knowledge of anything that's going on there, but we use so many of our own values to interpret the stories that we hear from China. And it just, it seems to me that, and again, I'm, I'm coming from uh, in the, the perspective of a, of a product person, a person in tech, a person that like wants to believe that we can build things that are better. And I think that it's a mistake again, to just assume sort of Orwellian outcomes simply because something has sort of an echo of the types of things that Orwell was worried about, you know, back in like the 30s. I think it requires us to think differently about the direction of the world and where the world is going, what the threats are, and that like crypto in, in, in this conversation moving, I don't know, it's just like even the word crypto has a tinge to it, which I think instantly causes people to think certain thoughts. And so when you combine crypto and China in the same sentence, instantly, I think your mind goes to this like, you know, weird sort of Blade Runner-esque kind of future, whereas I think it's going to be more subtle and more similar. And yet the, the power dynamics are going to be incredibly different. And so the question is, how do you play in those conversations with any amount of legitimacy if many other countries are moving forward with crypto and the United States still is like, eh, we're good with our fiat, we're good with our credit cards, like we're going to stay in that in that lane? Um, Chris, you want me to put a pin on it? <laughs> sure, sure. This, this has been great. I think I think that uh, if there's one thing we've learned over the last couple of years, everyone uses the term Orwellian, but I think uh, really astute people have noticed that maybe it's the Huxley world <laughs> that mm. we're actually in, where mm -hmm. it's it's Soma that we should be worried about. It it's it, it's yeah. amusing ourselves to death. <laughs> that is the real thing. So as great... Uh, listen, uh, 1984 was the most important book I ever uh, read in my life, but I think that we're in the brave new world more than we're in the uh, 1984 mm -hmm. world, but um, that's a conversation for another time. <laughs> um Thanks, everyone involved, um, everyone listening, Chris, 
Thank you yep. for co-hosting. You. Do, do you want to uh, plug anything? Yeah, back? I just... Well, yeah. just, to, just to wrap, you know, again, this is the, the Technium Ride Home experience um, for Wednesday, April 7th. Um, I would say this continues to be an experiment and may be a, an experiment uh, for the entire duration of this thing. We would love to hear from you. Um, you can hit Brian up and I up, um, of course, via DM, on Twitter, um, wherever. We'd love to know how you found the show, um, if it's coming from my tweets or coming from the show itself. Um, I would actually also like to plug the Shuffle Live Room um, that uh, – I guess we're also experimenting with. Um, if you go to the App Store, it's iOS only right now. Uh, sad, but true. Um, you search for Shuffle. You download that app. Um, you can actually go into uh, the TechMeme Ride Home Podcast room, which is an asynchronous social audio experience. You just have to like try it, and then you'll understand it. Um, but I think that's that's a pretty interesting way of, of both getting at the content and the stories that Brian is curating from TechMeme. Um, and I guess with that, we will find another time to come back and do this. Yeah, again. And, and let me just uh, uh, yep. say explicitly that we will release this as a podcast episode this weekend, either Saturday or Sunday. So um, everyone can listen to that at the Tech Meme Ride Home this weekend when we release it as an episode. And you can then do it on Shuffle as well and um, participate yep. asynchronously and comment in there. And let us know what you thought. Cool. Thanks, everyone. All right, buddy. Thank you. Bye, guys.